person <laughs> cricket <laughs> i would actually love to know uh, so today i'm talking with uh, neil saunders so neil is uh, introduced to me and also what i've heard from neil's uh, own mouth is that he's a pure mathematician and uh, he's a lecturer here in university of greenwich and it's in computing and maths department so neil thank you so much for doing it nice to be here yeah 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 but i was i was just saying i would actually be interested to know some sort of a mathematics in uh, cricket you know i mean how do you see it Oh um, well that that really depends on what you're interested in usually with cricketers and maybe with amateur cricketers like myself um it's more statistics than mathematics because we care too much about our batting averages or our bowling <laughs> averages and uh, uh how much we need to get an average like this at the end of the season but uh if you want to be more serious about it there's all sorts of uh fluid dynamics and aerodynamics with swing bowling and and rotations on the ball and and so on and so forth and of course now with technology you'll have you'll have uh here's a technical term boffins telling you how how far the the ball is spinning how many rotations are on the ball and so on and so forth wow. so there's a lot more mathematics to be had in the broadcast of cricket that there that there wasn't uh maybe a decade ago okay that is actually a very interesting point because yeah commentators are now going to be more informed by certain technologies than the calculation but this if most of the people as you can imagine pakistan or india in on streets find out that there are certain calculations which they can do and they can improve certain things in their game they might be running towards the mathematician giving them you know well actually i mean we can talk about my field pure mathematics yeah, i'm not yeah, a statistician yeah. at all but uh, i had a i had a friend back in australia who studied and majored in statistics and uh, some and uh, I was watching the watching the tennis I can't remember exactly who was playing but it was a great match but you know they always put those statistics at the end of a set or end of the games so many first serves in points one on the first serve points one at the net and so on there's compiler statistics and percentages and what have you uh I was thrilled and simultaneously jealous to find out that my good friend who majored in statistics was actually sitting courtside typing all of those things into the into the laptop computer to, for the for the live broadcast wow. so uh so some people say statistics can be boring well it can be very exciting wow. and uh, give you so many opportunities if you're uh, in that um uh if you're an amateur sports lover that that is fascinating that i mean who would have thought that i would do a stats degree and then go and do some sort of a badminton or, or or any kind of sports okay so let's let's maybe i mean what is pure mathematician because generally you know i assume that oh yeah if you're a mathematician you're a mathematician but i guess there is some need to distinguish here so yeah, there is there is some need i think uh the, the distinctions are useful at the start they're becoming less less uh defined or less set in stone because of course the great mathematics that maybe like the great music happens on the cusps of disciplines there are disciplines within pure mathematics and applied mathematics but very very simply uh pure mathematics is really is is involving abstract thought uh really wanting to to prove theorems uh and really get to the heart of why something is true uh in in a very pure and abstract sense whereas applied mathematics this is a gross generalization but it might be might be instructive at the at the outset is 
is interested in, in solving real world problems and using the mathematical theory in particular situations, whether it be engineering, finance, uh, aviation, um, building and construction. So to, to that extent, the, the distinction is useful, mm. but, uh, but um, mathematics is still mathematics. <laughs> yeah. So because I've heard more about astrophysics because of, you know, a lot of uh, media personalities are talking about it, astrophysicists themselves are talking about it. So it could be, you know, somehow if I compare it, it could be distinguished as theoretical physicists and the physicists who are actually working on CERN, maybe, or pe- so. So the difference between people who are working mm-hmm. on string theory and the people who are working in hadron collider mm-hmm. could that be a little bit of uh, possibly the analogy might be helpful. Like all analogies, yeah, they're yeah, helpful yeah. at the beginning, yeah, but, but they yes, um, they they can be misleading. But there might be a certain distinction there to be made between theoretical physics and experimental physics. Yeah, of course, each camp knows what the other side is doing. But physics was an interesting entry into math- the world of mathematics for me. I remember. Um, learning about astrophysics as a year 12 student back in Australia. You might be able to hear my yeah. accent there. <laughs> uh, and I was just fascinated by the structure of stars and, and how they emit their radiation and how new atoms are being, or uh, new atoms are being fused inside the star, which gives rise to the, to the radiation. And then the star will expand to a red giant and then collapse and then maybe explode into a supernova. And I found that really interesting. So I went into university saying, thinking, I'll, I'd like to study physics. And I, and I did study physics. Um, but I remember when I was learning high energy physics in my second year, we were learning about uh, quarks and quasars and leptons and subatomic particles and, and all, those, uh, all those interesting, very interesting things. But the lecturer did actually say, if you want to do this subject properly, you're going to need a subject called group theory, which is al- abstract algebra, uh, it's a pure mathematical subject, it was a subject taught in the mathematics department, not the physics department. So I enrolled myself in, in that course and I was really blown away by how beautiful it was. Um, I can't say that I actually understood everything that was going on, but I really just felt like this was something, really something quite beautiful and really something that will be worth my study. Uh, and so I, my interest turned to less physical things and more pure things and, uh, uh, I've, I've stayed there since, though I still have a keen uh, a passive observer's interest in, in physics as well. I think it's a beautiful uh, way of you talking about pure as an abstract, which is a very interesting concept because generally when you're talking about a physical and material world, somehow that is what most of the people would uh, value more. And But it is actually really brilliant. And I think it is uh, interesting if people like yourself are working on abstract concepts and would, you know, emotionally or, or you know, personally maybe understand it as pure, which is how, how do you how do you relate to it? Is it something am I justifying it? What I'm saying? Uh, there's a there's a philosopher I really like. Uh, his name's Daniel Dennett. And he he comes up with these lovely little phrases um, and one of them is called thinking tools. And while mathematics is a, is a discipline, it's an art, it's a language, it's all those things, it's all just a, just a wonderful thinking tool. It's, uh, it's something that allows us to get over our uh, poor intuitive thinking for the, the real world in, in some sense. So uh, if we just take the abstraction thing 
just for a moment. If you're trying to solve a real-world problem, you might look at the you might look at the the specs of the problem. You might look at the intricacies, and and you might find a solution. But you might think to yourself, ah, oh, there might be something more general going on here, and there might be some general rule that we that 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 is always true in problems that are similar. And if you can make that, we'll call it abstraction, but it's 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 just it's just a thought really. If you can make that distinction, then when you confront a problem that's similar, you can say, ah, actually, that's 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 an instance of this general principle that's going on here. And so we can apply what we've done in the abstract thing to a to a new problem. And in a, and by abstraction, that's all we mean, just extracting a little bit a little bit of general principles out of specific things and then with the hope of applying it somewhere else mm-hmm. or also allowing that piece of abstraction to have a life of its own and uh, express new concepts in that in that abstract world okay so how do you actually see your relationship with uh, this discipline or if you want to call it a discipline i mean i guess it's it's your life kind of um my relationship with uh, mathematics is I, I'm a I'm a worker in the in, in the in the great artifice and the great nirvana that it is. It's exploded in the 20th century and and before that. There are so many different disciplines and subdisciplines and disciplines within disciplines in mathematics that it's impossible to 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 know everything. But in my small little field, I have very specific problems that I work on and try to make progress on. And, and and publish and disseminate the, the the work that I am I do with my colleagues. So, when you were talking about um, abstraction in uh, algebra, is that the first thing? I mean, I would love to know a little bit more about uh, the subject itself. Mm-hmm. And what do you mean when you say a, a bit of abstraction? And you actually fall in love when you were. Um, taking that class and what was that thing and what you learned in that because that's an alien language for most of people I've talked to that's an alien language and I I seriously I try to read some of your paper and oh, they're oh my they're, 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 they're like they're, well there are some people who could probably read Tolstoy at age five but that's like giving war and peace to a to a three-year-old <laughs> yeah um, yeah not that I'm comparing myself with Tolstoy no no well you can't why not <laughs> but uh, it is it's it's just your mind somehow resists and it wants to you know get away from it so Definitely, it's not intuitive, and I guess most of people maybe understand. For some people, it might be intuitive. So I would like to know more about this language and abstraction and that algebra which you were talking about, and how certain concepts which you have learned in astrophysics relate to it, and how that journey happened. Um, well, maybe we'll we'll give a little exercise for our listeners. Um, let's try. Let's tr- let's try to do a little example. So I mentioned the term group theory. That that's essentially a study of symmetries in the abstract. So we'll try to unpack those terms in a in a little in a little bit. Oh yes, but, uh, I am. I'm excited. But, uh, <laughs> right here we go. If the listeners have got a pen and paper. Maybe let let's start. Let's just draw a nice triangle, a nice equilateral triangle, and uh, let's label our triangle with. Uh, the vertices of our triangle one, two, and three in in any way you like. Well, trying tr- if I say the triangle has symmetry, that's not going to stretch us too much. 
um, we can rotate the triangle or we can flip the triangle about, a, about an axis. And it's not too hard to see that if you rotate the triangle three times, you get back to the same triangle that you started with. Yeah. Um, and so that rotation, you can rotate it once. So one would go to where two was, two mm -hmm. will go to where three was, three will go to where one was. We can do that three times. We could flip the triangle, so one would stay where it is, and two and three get swapped. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Then we can do this thing called composing them. We could rotate the triangle and then flip the triangle. And I'll leave the listeners to do that as an exercise. And you can rotate and flip and flip and rotate and, and do these things in so many ways. If you try to write down all, this, all the different configurations of the triangles you'll get, you'll find there's only six of them. There's only, think of all the rotations you can do and all the flips, you'll only get six different configurations of the triangle. Okay. And, uh, and we'll call that the, the set of symmetries of the triangle. Now, let's just put the triangle aside for a second and let's just have three points in a line. Okay. Label them one, two, two three. three. Okay. Now just ask yourself, how many ways can I align those three points in a line? Well, I could have one first, two second, three third, or I could have two in the first place, one in the second place. I could swap two, two points in the, in the configuration. I could rotate them in a, in a three cycle, one goes to two. If you look at all the different ways you can do that, you'll find there's only six different ways. Okay. And you can rotate the points and, and swap the points just like you can rotate the triangle and flip the triangle. And you find that the set of symmetries are actually the same. Hmm. Okay. So the, the symmetries of a triangle are the same as symmetries on three points. Wow. In fact, it's called the symmetric group of order three. Okay. So there's an instance that up to symmetry, the triangle is kind of the same as three points in space. And so okay. we've taken one object, we've had a look at it and, 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 and we've, we've abstracted it to a kind of a, a different plane. And we've seen that that thing turns up in, in, uh, in, the, in the three different ways you can mm -hmm. arrange points. A professor of mine back in Sydney says mathematics is nothing other than just giving the same thing a different name. Okay. <laughs> and by extension, giving different things the same name. Yeah. And to a certain extent, that, that's, that's what we do in, in pure mathematics. Okay. That was a good exercise for my brain, to be very honest. <laughs> Although... Yes, this is definitely not intuitive. Uh, no, that, that's why I like the idea of the word thinking tool by, by Daniel Dennett. And I think it was a student of his who came up with an even better quote, uh, and I've forgotten his name, but it says, you, you can't do much carpentry with your bare hands. Okay. You can't do much thinking with your bare brain. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so our brain needs to have these thinking tools, and, and mathematics is just a wonderful a wonderful repository of thinking tools that we can, that we develop, we refine, we can use in different situations. We can use the same tool for many different situations. Hmm. Um, and we can also think, think when, when these tools don't work or when we need better tools. Yeah. Um, I think one of the astrophysicists, I forgot if he's a mathematician also, but his name is uh, David Cracker. Um, Institute of San Jose and I think he was talking about some research and I would maybe not recall it exactly how it is but um, that how certain capabilities biological capabilities of humans and uh, maybe our ancestors uh, ch chimps are pretty similar but the only dif the difference comes when you add the layer of culture mm -hmm. and the society Mm -hmm. So I just realized that is it's that's what you might be mentioning when 
you use math in abstraction, which is actually, you know, mediated through storytelling yes. or, or your imagination. And then you map that imagination, which is just abstract and you have no basis and put it onto the tool which you are mentioning and exercising. Sure. I mean, there's a great debate, which, and I'm not too sure what side I come down on, um, <laughs> whether mathematics is created or it's discovered. Um, I don't really want to express a strong opinion about that, but I, what I, what I will say is mathematics uh, really does allow you to have infinite creativity. Mm. Uh, some of the most creative people that I've met have been my fellow colleagues and, and professors who have just found ingenious ways to solve problems. Um, but uh, uh, the... The idea of mathematics as a, as a thinking tool and as a thinking tool developed by humans is a, is a, is a very good point because yeah. uh, uh, it, it is in itself a language that has been shaped and carved and sculpted through years and centuries of uh, discovery and rediscovery and false starts and, and false starts again until you eventually converge on, onto an answer. Yeah, mathematician, surprisingly also, I found most of them happier than other people. <laughs> And that actually, <laughs> seriously, actually, so, so of course, they must be solving problems. If they are solving problems, they are solving problems of life also and the other problems which is happening to themselves somehow. So, and they challenge themselves a lot. So they are a bit more, uh, I, I would generally say more fulfilled. Uh, well, I can't speak for all my colleagues. No, no, no. But, this, uh, is, this is my, my speculation. But here at Greenwich, just the, for the last two days, we've had the Greenwich Festival of Mathematics, Greenwich Maths Time for, for school students, and we've had a whole host of wonderful speakers come in, and, and our student helpers have been fantastic. But there was one, uh, math, there was one uh, speaker who, who did a brilliant uh, talk on the mathematics of juggling, and he could also juggle you know, three to five balls in a, in a, in a row. Uh, and and showed us all the different configurations and combinations by which that can happen, but he said something that was that was really interesting at the end. He did say that that this is this is this is fun. It can be fun, but it also can be really hard. You know, yeah. possibly because of the uh, our, our cultural evolution, as Darwin puts it, we we bear the the lowly stamp of our origin. We have to get over our our poor intuitions and so on. So it is hard. It, it does take some time. And, uh, and maybe like a creative writer or a poet, I'd say most of the time it's going badly. Yeah. Most of the time it's going badly because mm -hmm. you don't know how to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. you, ha you have no idea what the answer might be. Uh, you've tried and tried and tried and you just, and you just can't do it. But what, once you do solve the problem, once you make that little brief spark of insight, it's a very, very satisfying feeling. And it's those feelings that, uh, that, that have yeah. really... Um, I won't say make you make you happy, but do give you a certain sense of contentment. Yeah, I mean, I I have found a lot of mathematicians to be talking about a very specific topic and but giving certain very gener generic advice about life, and I found it very useful and helpful. So somehow maybe that challenge, somehow that uh, constant practice of questioning your intuition. And at the same time, working with them somehow, because you're pretty much in the blind, uh, might allow you to, you know, practice certain tools of, you know, challenging and transcending whatever you are considering yourself to be. And that might 
come out as you know a bit more positive and uh, less more less towards the side of where you feel more lost and you know have a heavy heavy weight most of the time that that's that could be one one ad. but but what i about what you were saying about the discovery or is it invented i i what i what idea kind of came in my mind and it would be the perfect place to tell it to you so that you can say what 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 do you think about it is that <clears throat> definitely one of the first time i understand why 1 plus 1 is 2 and it cannot be 3 or it cannot be any other uh, digit it was I like really it was a whole night I can't forget that moment mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where I realized that why one plus one is two mm -hmm. uh, because of the certain properties which you observe and you have there are no other ways otherwise the formation of the cosmos would not make any sense right so uh, I guess the what I feel like f that what I'm listening to all the time with the astrophysicists and mathematicians that maybe this is one of the advanced languages which humans can figure out which is most closest mm -hmm. to somehow uh, laws or rules or uh, habits mm -hmm. of cosmos. I mean, the reason why I use habits is because we used to think in laws and now we realize it's we haven't figured out there's a lot of conflicts. So let's call it habits of cosmos. Sure. And I, I, that's what I'm thinking at this point. Well, Galileo uh, in the 17th century described the universe as being written in the language of mathematics. So, um, so this idea of mathematics as a language is, is not new. It, it, it goes back. Uh, and an important thing about languages as well, and this is where uh, analogies are helpful and maybe, maybe provide a go just um, make us go down the wrong path in other situations is, uh, is, is yes, it's a language. It has a grammar. It has a syntax. There are syntactical and semantic reasonings you can make in mathematics. But also think about our natural language, the language that we're speaking now, our mother language. Think about how we learned that language too. We didn't learn the rules of grammar before we started speaking. We started speaking first and then learnt the rules of grammar later. Yeah. And it's that inversion that I think particularly in mathematics education, is an important one because, because it's, it's not necessary. In fact, it's maybe not that desirable for students to know why 1 plus 1 is equal to 2, just the fact that 1 plus 1 equals 2, and they can use it for other things. Um, again, to, uh, uh, to, to quote Dennett, I'm sorry, to, this is a big plug for Daniel Dennett, but he has, a, he has a nice little tagline in one of his books called Competence Without Comprehension. Yeah. Competence without comprehension. Now that's a wonderful little, little, uh, little meme, little nugget to keep yeah. with you, because uh, because that is how he argues, and I tend to agree with it. That is how cultural evolution has really got going. There's, we've been doing things we don't really know why we do them. We just do them. They work, and we build on that, and we try some new things. Some of them work, some of them don't. The ones that work, we build on that, and we build on that, and so on. I mean, so that's how languages and cultural evolution has worked. Mathematics borrows that to some to some extent. Now we do de generally do have uh, top down um, top down design where people think about things, create something, and then and then go on. But in the in in my field in mathematics research, even though I am thinking about abstract theorems and trying to prove them, the way by which I, that I'm doing them 
is far more on the competence without comprehension side. Because I might be trying to prove something, or I might not know what I'm trying to prove. I might just be trying to explain to myself what this phenomena is. And I'm trying a few calculations, and I'm trying a few more. And then I'll try this case over here. And then I might say, oh, that's interesting. What happens if I just vary this slightly? And I have no idea what the answer is. But I am competent at each stage in performing small little calculations, small little gradual bits of bits of information that allow me to piece together a larger picture. Okay. And at the end, and so when you see my published papers or any published paper of a mathematician, you'll think it's, you think it, it just came out like the way Mozart wrote his music, you know, no scribbles and no erasers. <laughs> but that's not the case at all. It might look like theorem proof example, but I promise you it, most of the time it goes the other way around. Example, non-example, mistaken example, then a correct example then attempted a theorem, then attempted a proof, and then finally you get there. So the, the, the idea of mathematics as a language and that competence without comprehension is a really interesting thing to bear in mind. Mm -hmm. I say that to myself as well as to my students as well because, um, because of course, students need to learn the theory and, 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 and be competent, proficient in, in mathematics when they, when they come out. But quite a lot of them... Uh, don't actually realise how important actually doing calculations is to really build up that 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 store of of, of proficiency uh, in in understanding what the bigger picture is. Yeah, so fluency in that kind of uh, language or, or world. Now, this we have developed that you know what what is the distinction and how beautiful it is if you are thinking in abstraction because. You can get lost and yeah we have seen tons of example of people lost in abstraction but how do you see generally when you are at your peak moments or maybe even at certain points how do you seriously see the world sometimes when you are in your flow states and you're really thinking in numbers and uh, what are you seeing a bit different because you can speak the language you know so so there must be a little bit of a difference of perception i assume uh, I, I, I wouldn't describe it as a, a difference in perception, but maybe, maybe there is a, maybe there is a deep sense of appreciation, a deep sense of the numinous and the, and the transcendent, you know, and, and I'm not talking anything supernatural or, or, or um, uh, gods and goddesses revealing their wisdom <laughs> to me, yeah, yeah. but there is a, a there is kind of a, a real in, intense uh, beauty that, that, that you see once, once, once you've kind of made a, a discovery, it might even be a small discovery. It might even just be something that you that you didn't understand when I was when when you were an undergraduate. And that, that happens to me quite frequently. Uh, there, there there were calculations that I just had no idea what was going on in undergrad, and I finally got it now. That that's a it, it's similar to when you you see a, a beautiful work of art or hear a a beautiful piece of music. It's 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 not necessarily a different perception, but it's a it's it it allows you to. To experience a real sense of the numinous and the and the transcendent. Okay, so it just deepens your maybe experience for yourself about different aspects of the thing. Possibly, I mean, um, I, uh, yeah, there's a there's a book called Unweaving the Rainbow by uh, by Richard Dawkins actually. Okay. And I think I think he 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 wrote that book or they gave the title of that book because it, there was a there was a point where the poet Keats. Uh, maybe criticised Isaac Newton for explaining the rainbow in terms of oh, how yeah. light hits the hits the water drops and how that gives off all the different colours of of the spectrum, and and I and I'm no expert on this, but uh, this is an anecdote. And Keats might have Keats might have said something like, 
oh, um, Newton has Newton has destroyed the wonder of the rainbow. And maybe in some sense, if you love the idea of a mystery, that we'll never know why this is so, then that might be the case. But when you think about the rainbow that you see is different from the rainbow that I see, but we're still looking at ostensibly the same rainbow. And the rainbow is not is not there, but it's, it's water drops passing through light. Think about how wonderful and rich that is and, and, and how more enriching and fulfilling knowing that and being able to explain that uh, uh, with, with the lens of mathematics, with the capabilities that mathematics provides. Is it, is it John Keats? Yes, the poet John yeah, Keats. Yeah, yeah. I, I really admire his work. I ha- I'm, I'm not someone just... Uh, oh, I like John Keats too oh, as yeah, well. Yeah, okay, I just okay. want to put that out no, there. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not think. I don't think that... Uh, I mean, I like him, but I don't, I'm not going to defend each and everything <laughs> he said. I actually uh, think that it is truly um, more connective when you're describing the truth and the honesty of whatever we know about certain parts of the universe and... It's just letting go of an older description, which we might have got used to it. And But if we open up to the newer one, then even if they are much harder to understand, but once you understand it, I think I agree with you that the, it's, it's, it's beautiful what you just described. But um, I'm, I'm just, with, the, uh, with John Keats, it's, uh, he has actually talked a lot about some sort of a science fiction uh, scenarios and because his name came in, so I'm just going to plug it. Uh, his poem called Hyperion, it's actually really interesting and it has a lot of um, artificial intelligence okay. and mathematic, m- mathematical kind of things. And what impressed me about him that he was actually maybe thinking and interacting mm-hmm. somehow with mathematicians because... If he has commented on, um, is, is who explained it? Galileo? No, no. Who explained? Uh, uh, Newton. Newton. Newton, sorry. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I guess he must mm-hmm. be, you know, borrowing those ideas because that makes sense. Uh, in, in... I'm, I'm glad you know more about Keats than I do. So I'll have to find some more time to oh, yeah, go yeah. back to that poem. He's, yeah, this, this is interesting. So um, what else? What are the other... Um, phenomenas would you would you like to explain because uh, i would love to hear certain other aspects of either your research or maybe dimensions which you have explored to oh, I, I, not I, physically i mean i mean i i haven't explored <laughs> i explored dimensions but, but uh, just for just for the the, the just for the listeners, I mean, the, the, the idea of dimension is a very common one in, in mathematics. We live in three dimensions, maybe four dimensions, space and time. But in, in mathematics and in, in, in physics as well, you have, you have structures and, and, and objects that live in higher dimensions. And, uh, and the, one of the great things is mathematics as a thinking tool once again. You don't need to be able to visualise these higher dimensions to be able to perform calculations in them. That, that's that's a, a really great feature of mathematics. It allows you, it allows you to get from one place to the other without, without um, it allows you to get from A to D, if you like, without going through B and C. It's, 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 a, it's a great thinking tool that allows us to overcome our, our, uh, our bad intuitions about how things work. Um, so, so you can define dimensions, you can define all sorts of geometric figures in, in, in higher dimensions. Um, uh, when Einstein needed to, needed to, to try to explain or come up with his theory of general relativity, for instance, he, he needed, he needed a, to develop mathematics 
some new mathematics in differential geometry to actually explain it. So there's a there's a there's another instance of how to express something that is that might be complicated and intricate in in the in the physical sciences. You actually need a language that captures all of that complexity and and uh, and and nuance, and and that happened to be mathematics. But um, I, I can't remember who else said this. I'm, I'm quoting a lot of people who I who I can't remember who the quote comes from, but. Uh, these, these objects that live in higher dimensions, if we could only visualise them, if we actually see what they look like, they would be in every art gallery, in every museum. Uh, and in fact, a few years ago, I was in, the, I was in Barcelona in the, the famous Sagrada Familia of uh, Gaudí. Okay. And uh, it was just a, a wonderful uh, exhibition of, 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 of some projective geometry, which is something that turns up very much in, in, in my work. And just to, 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 to not bore our listeners too much, but projective geometry is a really fascinating area of, of geometry. Um, the, only, the, the best way I can explain it is, is if, you, if you stand uh, on, a, on a long street or maybe a long stretch of railway track and you look at the railways, just make sure a train's not coming by when you do this, <laughs> um, it looks like obviously the railway tracks are parallel. Yeah, they, they quite yeah. obviously are parallel. But as you look way out into the distance, they're converging. Yeah, and it looks like they do meet. They do meet at some point far, far off. Let's just call that the point of infinity. Okay. Well, projective geometry uh, uh, asserts that these two parallel lines do actually meet at what is called the point of infinity, mm. and and you can develop a whole system of geometry and topology, and and functional analyses on these things called projective spaces, and. This might be a wonderful thing to do, very hard to visualise, but it's actually very, very useful in, in proving mathematical theorems and, and, and explaining phenomena that, that turn up in physics and, and curvatures of spaces and, and manifolds and, and, and et cetera and so forth. So, uh, uh, so it's very hard to visualise. It's, it's one of the death traps of, <laughs> of postgraduate students and undergraduate <laughs> students, algebraic geometry. It's a, it's a very difficult subject. But uh, but the structures that you can come up there are incredibly beautiful. And Gaudi's Sagrada Familia was just a wonderful tapestry of of, of geometrically inspired uh, design. So could you um, give some sort of a example of some uh, shape in a different dimension? How could I know that's it's an impossible task? I'm telling you to do it on an audio. But uh, is there something in your mind right now where? Well, maybe let's start with something that we can actually visualize. Let's just take a let's just take a tennis ball, for okay. instance, and yeah. just imagine yourself as being an ant just crawling along that tennis ball. Uh, how would you see that tennis? If you were the ant, how would you kind of feel like you're walking on that tennis ball? You would kind of feel like you're walking in two dimensions, because you can either you can only really walk, you know, around the around the angle of the of the compass, you know, yeah. around three hundred. You can't really go up. You can't really go down. So, so to the ant, you're just living on a, a two-dimensional surface. But for us, we're, we're seeing that tennis ball in three dimensions. And in fact, there's some mathematical content there. So the tennis ball is actually a two-dimensional object, but we just see it in three dimensions. Mm. Another way to say that is I can describe the surface of a tennis ball just by using two dimensions of real space, yeah. even though it's in three dimensions. Mm -hmm. The same thing elsewhere, just now. Let's just now describe a three-dimensional thing and put it in four dimensions and so on and so forth. It, it, you can no longer visualise it in four dimensions. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't. Some people can. But that doesn't stop you doing mathematics 
of higher dimensions, uh, um, just the same way you do the same mathematics in two dimensions or three dimensions. Uh, that that's all. Yeah. No. This is. Yeah. The. I think I heard it somewhere that this circle is sphere in you know three dimension. That's that's. <coughs> I, I I think. In three dimension, is sphere the most uh, elegant shape? Uh, well, elegance is in the eye of the yeah, beholder. That's true. But, um, <laughs> um, so everyone will come up with their own, their own thing. But it is it is just simply that sometimes the job of a, a mathematics teacher or an educator in any field is to sometimes say to people, sometimes it is that that simple. Mm. Don't try to complicate things with yeah. with other other things. Just stick to stick to this, uh, and and this will get you far enough. Um, that that's all that's all that's going on there with a with a sphere in it's a two dimensional thing in a three dimensional space. So I I think there's some I think there's a pretty famous book written by some mathematician about uh, people who were uh, shape of triangles and circles. Uh, somehow, do you know what I'm talking about? It's a book about yeah different dimensions where people. Well, it's not people. I mean, it's that these shapes are alive and it's a world filled with spheres and triangles and they have status and there's a there's a dimensions differences. So did you know what I'm no, 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 no? OK, book, sorry. OK. Yeah, it's, it's somewhat uh, definitely an American uh, mathematician. OK, but yeah, I, I just just wanted to throw it in if, if, because that's what um, I just remembered when you were talking about it. So, should we talk about a bit uh, about some other physical aspects like gauge theory or something else? Is there any other um, concept which you think we can do a little exercise of trying to explain, or or maybe some research you are working on? I mean, whatever you feel like it would be easier and interesting for you. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, my my my, my research becomes becomes technical and, and uh, I mean, not too technical for others in my field, but, uh, but essentially what I'm trying to do is describe, uh, we were talking about these dimensions earlier, describe these objects that live in higher dimensional spaces by some easier method. Um, I'm trying to describe these geometric surfaces using, these, using another tool called, called combinatorics, which is something you can easily, not easily, but you can you can program and you can do computations with, and that tells you something about higher geometrical objects. But um, I don't, maybe maybe at this festival of mathematics we've had the last two days, I, I quite often get asked by parents and school students, um, uh, what does what does research in maths actually do, and, and where is it going to be used, and um, and and is it necessary that students need to know their times tables now because they've all got smartphones and so on, and, and they've all got phones that can would be better at us than, than chess and everything. Um, uh, and certainly that's, that can be a, a difficult uh, question to answer. But, uh, but if, if, if there's any merit in the remarks that I have in, 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 in other uh, colleagues with their remarks as well is, is that mathematics literally is, is everywhere, uh, number one. It's, it's incredibly useful. But there's something also... Um, about pushing the, the frontiers of, of human knowledge, which I find very inspiring too. There are problems in mathematics that, that in, in my opinion, I think we, we will never know the answers to. But it is, it is trying to solve these problems and developing the techniques and tools that, 
that might make progress on the problem, which shed a lot of light in other neighbouring areas. Um, uh, what, maybe there's a there's a date here in mind. There's 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 an example here and a, and a date which which is quite telling in my opinion. I only just made this connection the other day. In uh, in in 1859, Darwin published his Origin of Species. So, pulled together all the the decades of work he did on 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 species and, and biological evolution and um, and mutation by rent. Well, he didn't use the word mutation, but it's the first time the idea of evolution had really been written down and 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 argued for. And think about how much progress we've made uh, as a scientific community on mapping the human genome, seeing exactly what the tree of life is, seeing exactly how all the species on the planet are, are related to one another via this, via this tree of life. Um, also in 1859, a mathematician called Riemann uh, invoked his now famous Riemann hypothesis. Now, what is this hypothesis? It is about the distribution of prime numbers in our, in our number system. So just very quickly, a prime number is something that is just divisible by one and itself. One and itself. Yeah. So two, three, five, seven. You might think nine. Nine is not prime because it's three times three. Eleven, thirteen, and so on. These prime numbers are, uh, uh, there are infinitely many of them. The Greeks knew that. But we don't actually know the distribution of these prime numbers within our number system. And, and we, we still don't know that problem, even though it's such an easy problem to state. And Riemann proposed his Riemann hypothesis, which is about its distribution in 1859. And we still don't know the answer to that question. But it, that question is one of the millennium problems. It's one of these things that if you solve, you'll earn a million pounds. <laughs> so, so anyone out there um, uh, who wants to earn a million pounds. But what's also wonderful about that example is it's given birth to so many areas of mathematics on, on the one hand. But also it's a good thing that that problem remains unsolved you know, in a way, because if we did know where the primes were in the number system, then that would break our encryption systems. The whole reason why our encryption systems are safe for the moment is because factorising numbers into primes and testing whether a number is prime or not is a really hard problem in mathematics. And, and, <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, so it's simultaneously a, a good and bad thing that we mm. don't know what the distribution of primes are. Yeah. And I like to keep that example because it may seem that biological sciences have moved leaps and bounds, and of course it has, uh, solving many problems. But this problem that stated in 1859 still hasn't been solved, but it, it has just made equally uh, the progress in mathematics and, and, and the, the disciplines and sub-disciplines that it's created uh, have just been e as equally important, even though the problem still remains unsolved. No, that is beautiful. I actually... Understood now that what how encryption works. <laughs> that is fantastic. Actually, I mean, when you're talking about where math is going on, and personally, most of the people who have done a lot of math, I, I, maybe I'm assuming, but even if you're working on applied mathematics or if you're working on uh, finding out uh, different aspects of physics, you do need maths, if I'm correct. So... Most of the people who have come back with whatever they have found and have explained it, um, who are good communicators, actually it has helped me personally to understand uh, where somehow I uh, or what is the relationship of my point of view 
to the world I am at. So it actually allows me to live a bit better, which is a crazy thing to say. But I do think there is a very um, grounded truth in it, which is that uh, I would I, I, I would be more um, um, enlightened. And this is the word I really want to use in that because it's actually very uh, physical kind of uh, experience that you can measure. You know, you, you do listen from some of these uh, mathematicians and then you perceive the universe a bit better mm -hmm. and then you understand your place a bit better and then whatever boundaries you think you have or whatever um, these uh, closets which you might be living in mm -hmm. tend to open up into the bigger ones. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is one of the most fundamental basic joys of being alive. I mean, just to discover that uh, you can live in a very different way. And uh, if, if, I mean, if this could be achieved by, you know, calculating things in that language, I think it's, it's worth it. I mean, what else? Uh, well, of course, Plato did, did, think in, in his academy that everyone needed to study mathematics and everyone needed to study geometry and uh, and I think uh, it inscribed on the on his on the entrance of the temple let no one who is ignorant of geometry enter here well we don't need to be so strident about these things um, but but certainly the Greeks thought that uh, that uh, that the, the, the well-lived and the flourishing life must have some training and a part of this training is is was mathematics and was uh, was um, uh, geometry, and among many other things. He was very suspicious of poets, so I don't think Paul Keats could, could help get there. But, uh, but yes, the, 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 when you discover the, these, these things or you understand a phenomenon that you previously didn't, it, it, it does give you a, a sense of humility. You are sort of humble before the facts, which is a, which is a, a, a nice attitude to adopt, particularly in these, in these sort of very strident times. But, uh, uh, but all those things... But, but aside from all of those things, it is a great deal of fun to do. And it's a, a, a really worthwhile pursuit. So you must, I mean, you, you like Dan Dennett, so I'm assuming. And you talked about a lot of philosophers, which means that most of the <coughs> math uh, or astrophysicists does kind of um, understand a bit more of... Um, a bit more than an average, uh, I don't think, uh, like average population about philosophy and they do engage a little bit. And I think now philosophers are trying to come back to the picture and pose problems where there is a role for philosophy. But I could see that you have also been engaging with that. So how much you think in, on a philosophical problems, which is informed by your mathematical training? Well, um, maybe perhaps uh, pure mathematics or pure mathematicians might have a bit more of, a, of an overlap with some philosophy because, of course, I mean, back in ancient Greece, everything was, everything was the same. And in fact, it's very nice to be in the faculty of liberal arts because in the old traditional sense of the term liberal, um, it, en it encompassed its history, art, literature, Mathematics, all these things were in were in the same in the same uh, in the same region, which is a which is a good thing, and I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. And of course, um, uh, STEM is important. STEM subjects are hugely important, but also the arts is incredibly important for asking the question of of who we are and how we want to live. So I don't want to diminish those those subjects either. 
but uh, but um, uh, uh, in 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 terms of in terms of philosophical questions, well, there are cert- there are certainly some some great questions and some serious questions that need to be asked about the role of artificial intelligence in, in, in the ways we do things, How, to, to what extent we'll allow ourselves to be governed by algorithms or manipulated by algorithms and, and so on and so forth. So, so policymakers need to be aware of this. Mathematicians also need to be aware of this. So there's a great conversation that needs to be had that involves mathematicians, um, philosophers, writers, um, social scientists. So, uh, so to, to the extent that, that we can, we should be sharing our knowledge and, and participating in a wider conversation about how our disciplines um, can contribute to, to the wider society. So I'm assuming now that you must have thought a bit about um, uh, free will. Have you? <laughs> just yeah i know just because you're mentioning uh, daniel dennett and also certain aspects have you thought about what do you kind of think of free will and this is your opinion of course we know it have you or am i just uh... well that's a that's a really that's that's a really difficult one to end on the, the podcast that's true well, maybe we can we can keep going um oh free will that's a that's a tough one mm-hmm. the the we may I'll, I'll peel it back to mathematics as well. It it the good thing about having a fluency and a competency in mathematics is it does allow you to to poke your nose into other areas too, and allows you to understand things that you you might not be able to previously understand, particularly if they're if they're if they're they're going to be uh, uh, if if complexity theory is going to come in or, or or some technical details that need calculation need to come in. Um, on the topic of free will, I remember a few years ago, and maybe they're, they're they're still out there, that there were there were these experiments where where they hook up hook an MRI machine to your head and they ask you to press a left button or a right button, and and I don't remember the results correctly, but the the idea was that the, the scientists could tell which button you're going to press before you were conscious of which button you're going to press, and so on and so forth, and and some took that to be, well, that we don't have any free will. We don't have any free will. We, we can just see what you're going to do. And uh, I hadn't really read the, the, the literature on it, and, um, um, but my reaction was that experiment doesn't show you that you don't have free will. That shows you that you're not a random number generator. Yeah, exactly. Right? That shows it, you're yeah. not a random number generator. <laughs> now, of course, anyone who wants to do free will um, can can go and read the numerous books on on. On, that philosophers have written, and of course, um, Dennett is is one. Um, but I really like his view that that free will should be should be a kind of competence. It is a kind of competence, and when we think about free will, we're asking not the right questions. We're asking whether someone know knew in advance whether you're going to do something or whether you could have done otherwise. Then it turns that around and and shows in in one of his books. Um, that, that free will is a thing that has evolved gradually, that evolution, that biology is the place to be looking for free will, not physics. Mm. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle won't give you free will, but biological evolution, creating structures that are more complex and able to do more things or better things, that, that is, that is the, the degrees, the increasing degrees of freedom of, of free will. And, uh, and well... That's that's as much as I want to dip my oar into it. No, no, but it's a fascinating, really fascinating topic. I mean, I I, th- I think it's very interesting coming from you, especially because 
it's hard to talk about free will with generally but i th- i'm 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 i think because you're solving difficult question you are comfortable tapping into this so it it is very good that i heard that because i think when someone asks or i listen about free will i think biggest problem is the definition of free will where they consider to have a control over an environment uh, which uh, then is you being part of evolution and then the cosmos and then all the rules and the what we kind of know mm-hmm. and so much we don't know and everything kind of get muddled up and then the free will comes like either we have it or we do not have it and i think this is a very beautiful point where uh biology actually kind of you know allowing you yeah uh on that level where there is meaning and culture well think about uh on on the topic on on the topic of degrees of freedom just think about you're trying to build a uh a a computer that that um is playing chess for instance you're trying to build a computer program that's playing chess um and you might have a computer that is more powerful than computer b might be more powerful than computer a and and there are greater possibilities available and be able to be computed in computer b that provides it to be a superior player to computer a that's the kind of degrees of competence that we're talking about here what are the specs of free will um there are various varieties of free will that we don't have and we and that subtracts nothing from our responsibilities to one another how our laws will go in our societies we can still have all the responsibility that uh that this free that this whatever definition of free will that comes from the biological evolution uh gives us we can still create our societies just the same as as we did with the old versions of of free will definitely so uh just in the last uh is there any um interesting universal phenomena which you think is uh, mostly explored by mathematics and generally when you think about it it doesn't really make sense uh, would you like to you know give something about that through i mean i, mean, uh, I don't know black holes sun how sun suns uh, stars are working something like that or even your um uh surface no i think uh i mean i i think what what's so wonderful about about mathematics and just to return to the our discussion about getting over our poorly evolved intuitions is is it allows you to to be surprised by how bad our intuitions can be sometimes here's here's a nice little problem that we can that i'll leave with the listeners um uh and it's called the birthday paradox so if you want to cheat you can you can google it online but it If the problem is this, how many people in a room do you need before the probability that two people share the same birthday is exactly is around a half? 54. No, <laughs> <I don't> no. <know. laughs> um you think, oh golly, well, there's 365 days in the year. Well, the, the probability that we share the same birthday is pretty low and then we'll bring in another person, they we don't share the same birthday. You think you'll need a a great number of people. Um the answer is I think is about 26. Oh wow. So the probability that half uh, you you'll have you have 26 people in a room you have a probability of around about a half that two people will share the same birthday. Okay. So 50% probability. Around probably yeah. Okay. 50%. Yeah. Wow. And I remember seeing that in in high school and I just couldn't believe it. And <laughs> and when you do the calculation you think it it works. It really works. Wow. Um and so maybe this is another plug for the for the 
for the discipline of statistics as well, statistics really does allow you to to get to the essence of a problem and pick out bits that are important. And and uh, and even though I'm not a statistician, if I'm giving a talk to to some high school students or even some first year students, I'll quite often go to um, these kind of statistical, almost slash psychological um, <laughs> problems of psychology to to show us how useful mm. how useful this sort of mathematical and statistical thinking can be in 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 helping helping uh, citizens be responsible and informed and reflective as they as they go about their lives. Perfect. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I've uh, I've enjoyed the question. Brilliant, brilliant. I mean, thanks a lot, Neil, for sure, illuminating a lot of topics about math and you know, allowing me to finally dip a little bit into this language and talk to someone. And maybe I hope that uh, most of the listeners might have picked up something about math which they would like to explore further. But thanks a lot for coming. Very welcome. Brilliant.